Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you for listening. We are back, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, It has been over a year since the last episode. Thank you, everybody, for bearing with us. And by us, I mean me. Um, Yeah, uh, it's so for the last two years, uh, the show has been kind of intermittent. Um, There have been long breaks here and there. Um, and frankly, most of it has had to do with my own mental health. Um, sometimes it had to do with logistics. Uh, a couple years ago, Jen and I were moving, uh, and so we, there were some delays there. Um, but yeah, uh, a, a couple years ago, um, <clears throat> probably coincide, not probably definitely coinciding with my being back in school, but also, um, the frustration of, Jen and I not being, uh, able to have, a not being able to get pregnant and, and have a baby, um, definitely led to some tension in our marriage and some, which then led to some depression on my part. Um, and it was, uh, very, very hard. Uh, anybody that was listening at the time knows that, uh, knows how difficult it was. So about a year ago, Jen and I had a conversation, um, about, what the best course of action for me would be. And one of them was to cut out anything that, uh, was obligatory, but not necessary. And so that included among other things, more than one lesson. So, uh, but she and I talked about it recently and decided that this is something that a, I really miss and B, I think I'm ready to bring it back into my life. Uh, I am doing much better. Um, as always, I have my good and bad days, but the bad days aren't quite so bad and the good days are not bad, are not that bad themselves. So, um, and then Jen and I are also doing really well, uh, through a lot of therapy and communication and that kind of thing. So, uh, for those of you who have expressed support and encouragement in the past and, you know, we're praying for us, uh, we really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, so the show is, is back right now. The plan right now is to do an episode every two weeks or so. Um, and at the moment it's just going to be me, um, Reed, Josh and Robert are not going to really be a part of it at least for a while. Um, Robert uh, moved away. He, he lives in Texas now, so he's not going to be available. Josh is a father himself. He has twins, so he's pretty busy. Uh, and so, uh, it may wind up being Reed, but again, that's not even a a guarantee. So it's mostly just going to be me and 
if there's like a very important guest or something like that, maybe that, but, um, but yeah, so we're not going to do the, the best of pictures, uh, project We're we're not going to be going through the more than one lesson top 50, uh, no real minisodes to speak of just regular episodes with me. So, uh, hopefully that's okay with everybody. And the film that kind of kicked all of this off, uh, which is to say that got me really feeling like I wanted to come back was, uh, Mariel Heller's A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood starring Tom Hanks. Jen and I went to see a critic screening of it and you can read my review over battleshippretension.com. And for those of you that don't know, it's, it's the Mr. Rogers movie, uh, not the documentary, which came out, I think last year, uh, which I actually found very frustrating at times because of the things that they omitted, but no, this is a, a narrative film with a script and all of that. And going into it, I'll just say that I was kind of iffy about it. I've, I've said this on BP and I've said it actually on other podcasts that I've guested on. When I heard that the studio was going to be pushing Tom Hanks for supporting actor, my first thought was, oh, okay, so this is going to be a situation where our lead is going to be a bland, forgettable, generic character, and Rogers himself is going to be relegated to to the side. And one of the reasons that bummed me out was that I, I worried that the film was going to just elevate Mr. Rogers, or that is to say Fred Rogers, into this Obi-Wan Kenobi type sage, where the film would not be very inquisitive about who he was or how he wound up the way he was. Instead, he would just sort of be there uh, dispensing wisdom for a character that I don't really care that much about. Uh, The film, thankfully, is not that. I should have expected more um, from Mariel Heller, who made the really wonderful film, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Uh, A movie that I really, really liked at the time, but uh, since I've thought a lot more about it, and it's a film that I genuinely love. Uh, Mariel Heller is a very talented director, um, and I think one of the reasons is that she takes material that in the hands of other directors might be, again, bland, uninteresting, and finds a way to make it engaging. In the case of Can You Ever Forgive Me, it's the story of this very quirky and eccentric woman who uh, started forging letters from famous authors and selling them, which of course is immoral and unethical, and it turns out illegal. But within all of that, uh, Heller creates a, a, a world of loneliness. And it's not just the the loneliness of the main character, but it's just all the people she comes in contact with, uh, even the people that are not criminals. Uh, they just live very quiet lives in these dusty old bookshops, um, feeling some sort of connection with the past through these letters and through these books. And you really get a, a strong sense of atmosphere, which is not a thing you hear very often when you talk about uh, a biopic or or a, a, a real life story. So, uh, so yeah, I should have expected more from Mariel Heller, but I guess part of me also thought that that, okay, so she had this fun independent film and now as studios do, they will recruit her and strip away any kind of individuality or uniqueness that she has and just put out this completely 
uh, bland film. Uh, but yeah, the film is not that. I don't know how many of you have seen it. It did pretty well for the kind of movie that it was, but not as well as people, uh, as the studio wanted it to do. But um, <clears throat> so the story is about a journalist for Esquire in 1998. This is based on a true story, but some of the names have been changed. Uh, the, the journalist's name is Lloyd Vogel, played by Matthew Reese. And he is a fairly cynical guy. Uh, he's known for his hard-hitting interviews and exposés. He is married and has a young child. And Esquire is going to be putting out a, an article about heroes. And his job is to go interview Mr. Rogers, uh, Mr. Rogers and write 400 words about him. He's fairly cynical. He hasn't thought about Mr. Rogers in a long time. And he doesn't really want the assignment. But he does it anyway. And so he goes to, I want to say it's Pittsburgh, and sees Fred Rogers doing a show, and they have a brief interview, and it's just enough for, for, um, for Lloyd to become more intrigued. And the nature of Fred Rogers is that as Lloyd asks him questions, Fred comes right back and asks Lloyd questions. And... As time goes on, we come to realize why Lloyd is so angry and frustrated. Uh, it has to do with his family, specifically his father, having uh, abandoned his his family while his mother was sick with cancer. And so he has a lot of, I would say, understandable bitterness towards his father and is struggling. You know what? I wouldn't even call it a struggle. He has sort of made his peace with simply not talking to his father. Um, he is his father is not a part of his life, but then he wants to be. His father shows up at uh, at uh, Lloyd's sister's wedding, and so it brings all this pain and all this hurt back up. And that is when Mister Rogers comes into his life, and the the conversations they have, it becomes clear that. Lloyd has given his feelings a place, but doesn't necessarily want to interact with them. And for those that know Mr. Rogers, he's all about trying to understand your feelings and, and being okay with those feelings, but also finding a, uh, a healthy expression for them as well. So, uh, so Rogers and Lloyd, they, they grow closer as, uh, Lloyd's father is still in the picture trying to find his way in and, and genuinely seems to be uh, sorry for what he's done. But at the same time, there's a lot of hurt there. And sometimes I'm sorry just isn't quite enough. So that's the basic story. And, you know, movies like this are not, I wouldn't say they're plot driven, they're character driven. And when characters make decisions and then take action, that is where the plot comes from. Uh, and all of the actions here come from characters making decisions. Um, so since it's character based, you really just kind of have to focus on the actors and do they do a good job. And, you know, we really need to talk about the lead, which is Lloyd. Uh, it is not um, Fred Rogers. He is a supporting character. And Matthew Reese, I think, does a very good job. Um, and I, I applaud him for taking the role because Anybody who is going to be in this film, they have to have known no one is seeing this movie for me. Everybody is seeing this not just for Mr. Rogers, but Tom Hanks 
as Mr. Rogers. Uh, and so, but what's more is I still need to carry it. It's, we know that Tom Hanks can carry a movie, but I'm going to need to carry this. Uh, and I'm going to need to be interesting enough that people aren't upset when they are away from Mr. Rogers. And so I think Matthew Reese does actually a very good job of showing a character who, when it comes right down to it, I'd say is kind of a stand in for the audience. He is specific enough in his story and in the performance, but the larger story, which is a parent has, has let down, has let somebody down. And that person as a result is a little bit jaded, a little bit angry. Um, that is a story that a lot of people can relate to in some way. And I don't know the actual story. So the guy that wrote the article, his name is Tom. Last name is spelled J U N O D. I don't know if that's Junod or Junod. I don't know. Uh, and I don't know how much of this is his actual story. So I don't mean to say that a person's real life is generic. Um, but real life can be generic. And so, uh, it can be, I, my hats, my hats off to Matthew Reese for taking this part, knowing that it's going to be a bit of a, a bit of a high wire act because he needs to really convey the specificity of who Lloyd is, the kind of hurt he has while also standing in for the rest of us. Um, especially when we see the way Rogers deals with him, um, Rogers advice to him is something that could be, and maybe should be applicable to most of the people watching, uh, the film. So I think he does a, a great job. Like when we see moments of real palpable anger, um, it, I won't say it's like a mad dog or anything like that, but it's, it's such a deep wound emotionally that when it gets touched upon, he does react as though it were an actual wound. Um, he draws away, he gets angry, and he doesn't seem to have much control over that. He has repressed his anger so that he looks pretty even keeled, but uh, but that's only because he's sort of papered over the, the wound, but then his father shows back up and it all just comes pouring out. And you realize that this is a guy who is in many ways controlled by his anger precisely because he has not done anything to deal with it. Um, because he's got other things to do. He wants to be a good father. He wants to be a good husband and he wants to be a good journalist. Um, but lo and behold, when he discovers, uh, the more he thinks about his own father, um, the more he realizes the ways that he's letting down his, his wife and, uh, son. Uh, and his wife is played by Susan Kalecki Watson. Her name is uh, Andrea. And, you know, if Lloyd is a thankless character, then then Andrea might even be more so because she has to be the wife. You know, she's she's not a lead. She is a supporting role. We see her every once in a while. And her job is to ask him questions while also trying to reassert herself as someone that he should be caring about. Um, and then somebody who is try she is also trying to get him to reconnect with his father because she doesn't have that wound. So, you know, again, this character can look particularly clueless and look like, I hate to put it in these terms, but could look like the nagging wife. Uh, but I think she does a really great job and I think brings a real specificity to her character. She feels like a really lived in person. She does not feel generic at all. Um, 
as Lloyd's father, it, you've got Chris Cooper, who is, of course, very reliable. Um, and what's interesting is that Chris Cooper always seems just the way he carries himself, even though in stuff like American Beauty and Adaptation, he can play very unstable characters. But when I look at him and when I hear him talk, maybe because the first thing I saw him in was Lone Star. But if you look at something like Seabiscuit as well, he's just like the paragon of stability, um, which is one of the reasons why I think he gets cast in stuff like American Beauty or the movie Breach is that he play he he plays on that image and then you realize that, that it's a facade that there's something else underneath so uh but nonetheless i see him as a guy who's just very strong and as jerry lloyd's father he plays a very different kind of guy a guy who is clearly a recovering alcoholic and maybe not even recovering that much <clears throat> And is probably not the deepest of people. Um, and I don't even necessarily mean that as a dig or an insult. Um, he's just a guy who has kind of gone along and just lived his life and not really thought that much about his choices or really the impact that they have on other people. And there's a real brashness to him that comes through to such an extent that you really don't feel like you're looking at Chris Cooper anymore. Um, you're looking at this guy, Jerry, and you can see why it's so feasible that Lloyd is so angry at him, not merely because of his actions, but because of his seeming obliviousness to the impact of his actions. And so Chris Cooper does a really great job of shedding sort of his image and, um, and embracing this character, making him charming and likable, uh, but also, deeply frustrating, maybe precisely because he's so charming and likable. Uh, and then lastly, before I get to Tom Hanks, lastly is Marianne Plunkett, who plays Joanne Rogers, uh, Fred's wife. We don't see her very much in the film. We only see, get a couple of scenes with her. Uh, but I love her performance and I love the way her character is written. Um, because she's somebody who she's married to a very famous man. And the man is famous for essentially being himself as opposed to being the, the spouse of an actor or a politician or something like that. Mr. Rogers is out there as I'm an, I'm a nice man. I'm a kind person. I advocate patience and all of these things that when you're married to someone, you realize, yeah, they're not going to embody that all the time. And so she has unique insight on him, but she also realizes that 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 aspect of him is very real. And the way that she interacts with him, the way that she talks about him, you can tell like she has tremendous admiration for her husband, but she also knows that he is not perfect regardless of what people might think. Um, and not that Fred Rogers necessarily puts himself out there as perfect, but that through our own nostalgia, because when we watch Mr. Rogers as a kid, um, he seems so understanding. And we, I know that some people think like, oh, why couldn't my father or mother have been that, that way? So I think there's a way of idealizing Mr. Rogers. And so when we run across Joanne and the way she talks about him, she talks about him as an actual person who is aspiring to, and in many, in many cases has achieved the level of sort of Zen-like uh, peace that, that he would 
convey, but she also has seen him work at it, which means that she has seen him fail at it. And she has probably had to deal with that. So uh, it's a really great performance with with minimal screen time. And I think a lot of that has to do with the writing as well. Uh, the film is written by Micah Fitzerman Blue and Noah Harpster, who uh, I believe actually plays a part in the film as well. Um, so then we get to Tom Hanks as Fred Rogers. And this is exactly the kind of performance I like for a biopic. Um, <clears throat> as much as I enjoy a good impersonation and, you know, when, whenever somebody does a voice or a movement and it's exactly what it's supposed to be, it's, it's uncanny. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. But that kind of thing can actually wear a little bit thin uh, over the course of an entire movie especially if the, the actor shows that they're much more interested in impersonation than embodiment. Uh, my, my go-to example is usually somebody like uh, Jamie Foxx in Ray, for which he won Best Actor, and he does a great Ray Charles impersonation. There's no question about it. But I feel like I don't really know much about Ray Charles by the end. Um, it, it's the performance itself doesn't seem particularly inquisitive. And I think the movie doesn't either. Uh, as opposed to a year later, you had Joaquin Phoenix playing Johnny Cash in Walk the Line. And he doesn't sound that much like Johnny Cash, but he is he's approaching the character like it were any other character, uh, fictional or otherwise. He needs to figure out what makes this man tick. And then he will layer on the, the cadences um, I think a, another example is uh, Anthony Hopkins in the movie Nixon. He doesn't really look like Nixon. He doesn't even sound that uh, that much like Nixon, um, but he's sort of evoking Nixon. And that is something that I'm much more interested in. So Tom Hanks doesn't look exactly like Fred Rogers. He doesn't sound exactly like Fred Rogers. You don't, you don't feel like you're watching Mr. Rogers. Um, at least you're not watching him exactly. But Tom Hanks gets the cadence right and he gets the, this is going to sound a little bit hippy dippy. He gets the essence right. He seems to really understand what makes Fred Rogers tick. And he, and he recreates that. This is a, this is a performance built from the inside out, not the outside in. Um, and so through makeup and costuming and then physical movements and all that he does everything is done so that he looks enough like mr rogers so that you can ignore those differences because and and tom hanks allows you to do that to such an extent that when you're just watching the film uh you don't or at least i didn't think about uh the the mr rogers that i knew i instead just accepted the one that was presented to me so uh, i really like that and another thing that i like and this is again a combination of the writing and the performance uh, Mr. Rogers here seems very shrewd, and that's not to say deceptive, it's not to say manipulative, but it's easy when you watch Mr. Rogers to see, you know, he has a very slow, measured cadence, and it'd be very easy to look at that and mistake it for simplicity. Um, because he talks with children, he has sort of adopted this tone, and again, this cadence, but that doesn't mean he's not incredibly fiercely intelligent. And that is something that we get here as well. And Tom Hanks uh, portrays that or expresses that through his eyes primarily, the way he looks at Lloyd when Lloyd is asking a question um, and the way he just looks at, at anybody. There's, 
there's tremendous patience, but there's also a, an, an analysis going on. He is analyzing and assessing the person that he is talking to. And in some cases, and maybe most cases, it's so that he can better, you know, minister to them and better relate to them. But in other cases, I think it's so that he understands what their motives are. And so there are these moments in the film where, uh, Rogers is being asked questions by Lloyd, but he's not answering. Instead, he turns things around and asks Lloyd questions or he brings up, you know, he mentions, Hey, here are my puppets or whatever. And on one hand, it seems like, Oh, he's very, he's very, he's so caring. He's interested in what Lloyd has to say. And that is true, but it is also true that Rogers is dodging the question. Um, and maybe it's because he wants to maintain a persona and maybe it's because he feels like who he actually is and the stuff that he actually struggles with is not that important. Um, there's a, a moment where Lloyd asks if, if it's a burden to be Mr. Rogers, to have so many people come up to him and tell him their problems and all that. And he never really answers that question. And one could say, because he doesn't want to show weakness. Another is if he publicly says it's a burden, then maybe people will stop. And he doesn't want people to stop. He wants to continue being there for them. So what I like is that in the end, my, my concern about the film, which is that it would make Mr. Rogers, uh, almost, um, ethereal, like he's, like he's above us or that he's, he's unknowable. And the fact is in the film, he is unknowable, but in a very human, very deliberate way. It's not that he's operating on a higher level than the rest of us. It's that he is making choices to specifically evade and not let himself be known. And so there are times when we are frustrated with the Fred Rogers character, just as Lloyd is. And moments like that help us to connect more with Lloyd than with Fred Rogers. And I think that is a brilliant bit of writing. And I think it's also a, a really smart bit of acting from Tom Hanks because he could have, it would have been so easy for him to just make Fred Rogers into this, uh, this kid-like, again, otherworldly presence, but no, he makes him into a flesh and blood person who will sometimes do things that frustrates uh, other people. So, uh, so the performances all around are really wonderful um, and really pull us in so that the story that's being told, which is not the life story of Fred Rogers, uh, it is the redemption of Jerry Vogel and his relationship with his son, Lloyd Vogel. That's the actual story being told. Um, and because mostly because of the performers, uh, we really get drawn into that story. I will also say that Mariel Heller as a director makes the film interesting visually and structurally in a way that films like this normally aren't. Uh, one of them, in, in a way that I find sometimes a bit cloying, but it, it won me over eventually. Uh, anybody that has watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood knows that we first see this, the, this little model of his town, and then we the camera sweeps over this town and sees the model of his house, and then we cut into the house set. Um, and so whether it be New York or Pittsburgh or whatever it is, anytime we have these establishing shots, they are actually models, not unlike Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Uh, and then we also have these, these moments where we're inside 
the show itself. And then Lloyd finds himself in there and it's sort of a dream, but it's also a surreal fantasy. Uh, and then we also, the thing that, that I like the most, uh, it's really just a moment, but I think it really captures who Fred Rogers was, but also what makes this film different. This is not a movie, as I said, about Mr. Rogers so much as it is trying to embrace who he was and infuse the film with that. Uh, so there's a <clears throat> there have been several clips going around on YouTube for a long time, and then the the documentary actually featured them uh, featured this moment uh, in it, where Mr. Rogers, when when receiving an award, and he received a few, when he would receive an award, he would go up and he would thank people, but then he would also say, hey, uh, we're all speaking to the, the audience, which consisted of celebrities and, and all of that. And he said, hey, we're all here for a reason. It's because we probably had a lot of support and I'm going to give everybody 30 seconds to a minute or whatever it is to just be silent and remember the people that loved you into existence, loved you into being and, and encouraged you until you wound up here. And then he always says this thing where he says, I'll watch the time. And then you just would see this auditorium full of people being completely quiet as Mr. Rogers just looks at his watch and everybody is, is meant to think about the people that got them there. Um, and it's always powerful to, to watch. And so the film incorporates that uh, between Mr. Rogers and Lloyd at a restaurant. And what's interesting is everybody in the restaurant gets silent. And he's not saying it to the restaurant. He's saying it just to Lloyd, but everybody is completely silent. The world is silent at that moment. Um, and as Mr. Rogers is looking at Lloyd, his eyes very, uh, very subtly shift and he's looking right at the camera and he's looking right at us, uh, as, as we sit in silence. Um, and so, you know, looking at the camera is a very bold choice. And I think a lot of, not many people do it, but every once in a while, when someone does it, it pays off perfectly. And I think in this moment, like having the entire restaurant go quiet unnaturally, having Mr. Rogers look at the camera, it really is something that's outside of the standard structure of a biopic. That's, that's not a naturalistic choice. That's a movie choice. And it's one that is meant to welcome us into the film because, you know, when you think about it, movies are not silent very often. And so here you have an extended moment of silence where that we are sharing with the people in the restaurant and the Lloyd character. And there's Mr. Rogers just looking right at us. Uh, and it's, it's a really, it worked for me. I, I really loved it. And, uh, sure enough, I, it, it forced me to think about, you know, who are the people that, uh, that have encouraged me, uh, to be where I am and, and all of that. And so, that's what I mean when I say that the film really is about more than just telling the story of Mr. Rogers. It's about trying to get us to really understand who he was, what motivated him and him being who he was. He didn't want the focus to be on him that long. Uh, he would then put the focus back on us, which is what that moment is all about. It's, he doesn't want us, the film doesn't want us thinking about him or about even the film. It wants us thinking about our loved ones and, and that sort of thing. Uh, for those that are curious, because uh, Fred Rogers was uh, a Christian, he was a Presbyterian minister, uh, and there are a lot of people who 
rather publicly speculated that uh, that the film would whitewash um, his faith, and we don't see a lot of it, but we also don't see we don't not see it either, and so his wife mentions that he prays and he reads scripture and that he prays for people by name. And then later on, we see a, a moment where Rogers is knelt is kneeling beside his bed and has a little book open. And it's a book of names that he's specifically uh, of people he's specifically praying for. And then later he's, he is talking with Lloyd's father and he, and he whispers for, he whispers asking Lloyd's father to pray for him. And, you know, so the idea of prayer and the idea of, you know, the word scripture, admittedly the word Bible isn't used, but who cares? Um, they don't shy away from it. Um, they don't show him in church or anything like that. Uh, so I don't think they necessarily scrub the film clean of his faith. Um, I think that they just let it be a part of who he is without him being really overt about it, which frankly, I don't think he really was in life anyway. Um, he wasn't ashamed of it, but he didn't necessarily lead with it either. Instead, he just let it inform his actions. Uh, and that is what we see in the film. So, uh, so it really is a film. I've already said a lot about it and it's not like this is a spoiler type of movie. We already kind of had a, have an idea of where the story is going to go. Uh, but if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's, and even I know that I have listeners in, the UK and that sort of thing who probably didn't grow up with Mr. Rogers and may maybe have no real clue who he is. Uh, and similarly, there are people that are younger. Uh, I, as I've, as I mentioned a year ago, I am a teacher now. Um, and I teach middle schoolers and high schoolers and college students. And, uh, it's only really the college students. And even then the ones that are maybe 22 or 23 who have some inkling of who Mr. Rogers is, but sir, you know, he died in the early two thousands. And so if you're a middle schooler or even a high schooler at this point, you don't really have an idea of who he was. And so, uh, it's, that that's interesting. So if you're if you're younger and you don't really have an idea of who he is, there are plenty of YouTube clips that you can watch and get a sense of who he is. But at the same time, I feel like if you didn't necessarily grow up with him, it won't really have the same impact on you as it would somebody that uh, that did. So, uh, yeah, it's a really great movie, and I highly recommend it. Um, <clears throat> and the film reminded me of a movie that we actually did an episode on uh, about ten years ago. Uh, about a, f uh, it's a film called uh, Happy Go Lucky by a director named Mike Lee. So that episode is still available. You can go and and check it out. So I'm not going to talk about it much here, but it features Sally Hawkins, who's gone on to. Uh, I wouldn't say she's necessarily famous, but she's been. She was in Blue Jasmine. She was nominated for uh, The Shape of Water. She was in the God the recent Godzilla movies. Uh, the Paddington film. So she has definitely gone on to, to do some great things, but uh, it's a performance that, that is just so unique. And it's about this young woman named Poppy, appropriately enough, who is just very upbeat and chooses to see the positive in life. And that puts her at odds with the world around her. Specifically, she is she's in her 20s and she never learned to drive. So she is uh, taking a, a driving instruction course and her 
instructor. His name is Scott, and he's played by uh, Eddie Marson, who you've seen in the Sherlock Holmes movies and various other things. And he is the exact opposite. He looks at the world around him and has let himself get very angry and jaded. Um, and so the two kind of butt heads, at least that's one way of looking at it. In actuality, uh, he just gets increasingly angry at her because he doesn't understand how she can be so upbeat. Um, and so we watch it and we are occasionally frustrated by her, but there's a moment she is a, a teacher. She teaches children. Uh, and so not unlike Mr. Rogers, uh, in dealing with children has probably had an impact on the way she approaches the world, but she is optimistic and all of that. She is indeed happy go lucky, but that doesn't mean that she is dumb or oblivious to the world around her. It just means that she chooses to look at it in different ways. Uh, the primary, maybe not the primary, but this is a big moment in the film where one of her students is being bullied by another. And when she talks to the bully, she doesn't come down hard on him. Uh, she does on his actions and she definitely wants to be there for the victim, but she, uh, she sees in the bully behavior, um, that she starts to question. And, and, and so turns out that, yeah, he is, he has a bad home life and he's taking it out on other people. And so that then forces her to, and, and the school to like, okay, well now we need to deal with this home life and see what's going on there. But <clears throat> I find myself looking at a situation like that. I feel like the character of Scott, if he were faced with this situation, uh, he would probably feel some, I would say, very righteous anger against the bully. And he would say, this is not acceptable. And he would come down very hard on him and not really be that interested in where this behavior is coming from or where it originates from. And so that is something that we totally understand. And I think that we relate to, we want justice. We want, we recognize that the world is not fair. So if we have the opportunity to make something fair, do something right, that's what we're going to do. Uh, and the idea of, of trying to understand where somebody is coming from in their negative behavior, in their anger, in their, uh, abuse and bullying, um, <clears throat> we're just not interested, uh, in that. But meanwhile, that's, that's, uh, that's where Poppy's attitude is probably more beneficial um, because if she just came down on this bully instead of trying to understand where the anger is coming from, then this bully, and I, of course you want to be there for the person that has been bullied. You want to be there for the victim. That That is the the chief concern. But once that has been taken care of, and you want to make sure that they're never in a position to be bullied again, but along the way, uh, especially when dealing with children, you want to make sure that, uh, that this kid's behavior, that, that the bully's behavior, um, you want to see where that might have come from because maybe that can be, uh, uh, headed off. Um, you know, you never really know where somebody is coming from. Uh, there's a wonderful line in, in the film where Poppy says to Scott, who again is, has shown himself to be very angry and impatient with her. And she says, it's not easy being you, is it? And I, I love that line um, because at a time when he's yelling at her and angry with her, all she sees is that, wow, 
as miserable, as angry as you are uh, against me, you're probably just generally miserable. And so she's able to see past his aggression and just see hurt and sadness and loneliness and all of these things and is able to see that it's not easy being him. Uh, rather than simply see his behavior, she sees underneath it. And that is something that uh, I really get the impression uh, of from A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood and with the, with the character and the person of Fred Rogers is that um, when dealing with anger and unforgiveness, he really seems interested in where that comes from. And yes, having a, a healthy expression of that um, and making sure it goes in, in constructive places but also trying to figure out where it comes from, uh, which is why he did episodes about divorce and death and the various things that kids, they're still going to deal with, even if they don't fully understand what it is, uh, whether you understand it or not, your parents still get divorced and people still die. And, uh, it can still be heartbreaking, even if a kid can't process it, uh, completely intellectually. So, uh, yeah, uh, the thing that really uh, jumps out at me about this film, um, going back to A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, is just the the tone of Fred Rogers. And there's been, of course, a big campaign from the studio. It's like, this is the movie we, re- we need right now, and we need to be kind, just like Mr. Rogers was kind. And I agree with all of that. I would, you know, when a studio says it, I'm, in, I'm less inclined to agree with it because I think they're just trying to capitalize on the cultural moment so that people will see their movie, but I'm not going to put that down. I'm not going to put that on uh, Mario Heller or Tom Hanks or Fred Rogers. I think they're trying to make the best movie they can. Uh, but I, one thing that's interesting is that, uh, from a political standpoint, yeah, things aren't great right now. As, as you know, um, People are probably more divided than they've ever been. Well, I guess there was a, there was literally a civil war, uh, so probably not more divided than that. But things are pretty divided right now, and each side feels perfectly justified in treating the other side very poorly and not seeing where they're coming from. Uh, and so, and it's understandable um, because when you see that side acting. When you see the other side acting a certain way towards you, you are inclined to act uh, that way towards them. And so there really isn't much room for the Mr. Rogers or the Poppy from Happy Go Lucky, that, that attitude of, of seeing where somebody's coming from. But uh, the film is, is advocating that. Um, but what's interesting is, so I announced that I was going to do this episode and Sure enough, when the time came to do it, I was reluctant to because I, I felt so out of practice. And then I was like, oh, man, like I already said I was going to do it. And suddenly I was like, wait, is this immediately become an obligation? And it wasn't just that. It was that I just had other things that I needed to do as well. But I happened to be listening to a podcast that is political in nature. And the commentator, uh, <clears throat> who I usually really agree with, was talking about how frustrated he gets with Mr. Rogers and with the the championing of a beautiful day in the neighborhood from a from the standpoint of like masculinity and from the standpoint of Christianity. Uh, the idea of of this very one could say I don't think he said it, but like sort of this 
wimpified, uh, weak, uh, type of, of masculinity. And then he said what I've seen other people say that like, Hey, Jesus, he's the one that overturned the tables, uh, you know, in the, in the temple and he stood up for what was right and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and yes, he did do that, but I think it's a situation where like, there's a, a very, and at the moment I'm talking about masculinity, but this can apply towards, towards anything. Um, there's a very American idea of what, uh, what masculinity is, um, or what strength is. And it tends to be, and especially on my side, I, as you know, I tend to re to lean right, which often puts me at odds with fellow conservatives when it comes to movies, because, uh, I tend to think artistically and I, tend to embrace feelings, um, at least when it comes to relationships and with artistic, uh, appreciation and that sort of thing, which doesn't really, uh, go well with the modern conservative mindset. And so, uh, the idea of masculinity being like John Wayne, you know, um, which is fascinating for me because if you've watched the Sopranos, then you know that Tony Soprano, uh, who is our hero, but also a horrible, horrible person. Um, he justifies like stuffing his emotions, uh, by saying like, you know, whatever happened to like John Wayne and Gary Cooper, like the guys, the strong silent type. Meanwhile, uh, this is a guy who, uh, murders people, um, but feels perfectly justified in doing that. Um, and maybe if he were to get a little bit more in touch with his feelings and humanity, maybe he wouldn't do that. Although the film actually explores the way he just finds a way to make emotional deals with himself so that he can continue living selfishly. But anyway, that's not, we're not talking about uh, the Sopranos, although we could, cause it's an amazing show. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, this idea of, of, of John Wayne instead of Mr. Rogers and this idea of, of Jesus being the man who drove the, the money lenders from the temple. Yes, he did do that. Absolutely. And yet I think it is, I'll just say idiotic, um, to only portray Jesus that way. Just as I think it's idiotic to say, Oh Jesus, he was just a great teacher and he just told us to love each other. Well, of course he did. Yes. He told it. He was a great teacher. He did tell us to love each other. He did drive people from the, uh, the money lenders from the temple. He did all of that money changers. Pardon me. Um, but he also like, he was all of these things. Like it's important to look at Jesus in all of these, in all of these ways. Um, because, uh, I remember, so this, this commentator who I'll say is someone I actually know. Um, and so I might reach out and say, Hey, I think you're off base. Um, but nonetheless, he was talking about how somebody like a Mr. Rogers would just let himself get walked all over, you know, to which my thought is, yeah, Jesus let himself get walked all over. In fact, he let himself get crucified. He was the lamb of God, not the lion of God. Um, he saw other people first. He connected with them where everybody else saw a tax collector or a prostitute or these things that were uh, unethical or immoral or whatever it is. And they saw that first. He saw past that to who they really were, who they wanted to be. Uh, 
and he was able to connect with them on that level, which is ultimately what Mr. Rogers and again, uh, this character from happy go lucky, what they're advocating. Um, if you look at Jesus message, yes, it is absolutely a message about holiness and reconciliation to God. And it is not a relativistic message. He says, nobody comes to the father except through me. That is very concrete. But at the same time, I think there's a difference between being resolute and strong and being unfeeling. And Jesus was, uh, was very feeling towards people. Um, he didn't say blessed are the strong. All right. In fact, I have what he said right here in Matthew five, three through 12, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. Blessed are the blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is our reward, is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, so here's some words. Meek and merciful and peacemakers. That doesn't sound like uh, somebody who's looking to put up a fight. Now, of course, defending people that are being hurt, well, that's a different thing. Okay. That's something I think Jesus does stand for, but the idea of just like, you know, don't tread on me, which again, if we're speaking purely in terms of like, uh, of Americanism, I'm all in favor of it. I'm in favor of standing up for your own liberty, your own freedom, your own, uh, rights. I'm fine with that. Um, but to, but to act as though Jesus was all about that, like essentially, um, to put this conservative, or I guess Republican American cover on Jesus and say, no, that's who he is. Like, no, that's just as simplistic and just as reductive as, as anybody else who says that God doesn't care, that, that Jesus doesn't care about what you do. He does obviously go and sin no more is a thing that he said to somebody. Obviously he cares about our sin, but similarly he died for our sin. He did not kill for our sin. All right. And so along those lines, I, when I look at Mr. Rogers and I, and I see that he is helping us to understand ourselves, understand our sin, understand our frailty. I see that as being meek and being merciful and being a peacemaker. I see that as somebody who really is trying to live out um, Jesus principles. We appreciate strength. I, appre I appreciate that. I mean, I like seeing movies with action heroes who fight uh, against evil. And I think there's absolutely a place for that. But I, just as I think there is a place for somebody like Mr. Rogers. And I think it would be, again, idiotic to try to eliminate one uh, in favor of the other. Uh, to embrace Jesus is to understand how complex he was and that the nature, uh, if, if, if Jesus was in fact the son of God, then he probably would be distasteful to everybody in some capacity. There'll be things that he says that, that we are totally on board with and things that he would say that we are not on board with. Um, and that's kind of how you know that he is, uh, special in my opinion. Yes. The son of God. Um, and so we come to this idea of forgiveness. Um, 
you know, Lloyd ultimately has to forgive his father. Now, in the film, his father wants that. I don't remember if he ever actually asks for forgiveness, but that's ultimately what he wants. He's looking for reconciliation. And when somebody shows that they are sorry for what they've done, it's a little bit easier to forgive them. But sometimes a person might not even know what they've done that's wrong. And how do we even forgive that? Um, And I think the film ultimately says, like, forgiving somebody... Yes, it is about extending that to them, but it's also about letting that go uh, for ourselves because that type of hurt can be a defining element of our lives. Um, And I'm somebody who I have a a very hard time forgiving. There are things that I hold on to um, as as proof that I am right to not trust other people. And I say that as though I've never hurt anybody or that I'm totally trustworthy. Obviously I'm not, but, uh, you know, in order to avoid pain, we hold on to that pain so that we learn from it. Uh, that's kind of what we, what we tell ourselves. And so, uh, but what the film says is that whether the person is whether the person is sorry or not, or whether, whether they even know or not, forgiveness is something that you sort of should do for yourself. And obviously from a biblical perspective, God was willing to, is willing to forgive us for the things that we've done. Um, again, it is, that is extended to us, whether we accept it or not, it's just always there. And I think it gets back to this idea of, of strength that I was talking about, um, that we, we think that strength means justice and it sometimes does mean that. Um, and so if someone has wronged you, then you wrong, then you wrong them back, except it's not wrong because I'm, because they started it. It's right. It's righteous for me to, to come back at them. That's a very John Wayne idea. That's a very Gary Cooper, uh, idea. But to me, that is not inherently strong. One could say that self-sacrifice is strong, that being a peacemaker, and I realize a peacemaker is also the name of a gun, but in this case, uh, being a person who strives to make peace between other people and maybe even between someone and themselves, being meek uh, being merciful. Those are the people that according to Jesus will be blessed. And I can't think of anything more genuinely strong than being able to fight against somebody that is hurting you. And you, you actively choose not to, which is in the end what Jesus chose to do. Uh, he chose to make himself weak it reminds me of that song, Jesus Loves Me, uh, which says, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, for he is strong. And <clears throat> it's interesting that that line would be in this song about Jesus' love, because his love was so strong that he allowed himself to be weak uh, on the cross. So just something to think about. Um, it's so easy to look at, especially these days, look at what the other person is doing. It could be someone in your life or it could be some random political commentator somewhere, um, whether it be someone that 
is on your side or not officially, uh, they might say something that just infuriates you. And what this, what these films would suggest, and I think what Jesus would suggest is look past the disagreement first. You don't have to agree with what they're saying, but look past the disagreement to see who they are and see why they're saying these things. Chances are they want the same things you want. They, they want what's good for you, for them, for other people, but their attitude or their ideas are just misguided. And that's, it's okay to acknowledge that, uh, understanding doesn't mean being dishonest with yourself, but reconciliation and forgiveness first comes from seeing the other person first as a person to go back to a phrase that we've used from the beginning of this podcast. Um, and I think that's at the core also of those moments when Mr. Rogers would have you be silent for an extended period of time and think about the people that loved you into this because their love probably meant some kind of sacrifice also that you could be where you are today. Uh, and in the end, the ultimate sacrifice out of love was, um, Christ's sacrifice. So, uh, lots, lots going on here. Um, but that is the nature of this kind of movie. And it's one of the reasons that this movie made me want to come back and do more than one lesson. So, uh, there will be another episode in uh, a couple of weeks. I don't yet know what it's going to be about, but in the meantime, check out this movie, go and rent uh, happy go lucky. It's a marvelous film. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, I will also say there is a, so there's a, a streaming service called faith life TV and I made a documentary for them called real redemption. And that should be showing up in the next few weeks. I don't know exactly. I will definitely announce when it does, but, uh, keep an eye out for it because I'm very proud of it. And if people watch it, then they'll probably let me make another one. And I have an idea for another one that I'm actually very excited about. So you can check that out. And then also, uh, I do have a book, uh, a new book called cinematic suffering reviews of terrible movies, which you can buy for $15 only in the United States, unfortunately, because I can't afford to ship anywhere else. Um, but yeah, you can buy that through more than one lesson, uh, through the store. So, uh, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this. It's good to be back. Uh, thanks for listening and we'll get you next time.